This is Ed Voices from Education International in Brussels. Global news, opinions, and more from professional teachers, educators, and advocates dedicated to policy education for every student. So, hi everyone. Dennis Shirley is professor of education at Lynch School at Boston College. He's also the editor of the Journal of Educational Change, uh, author of several books, among them The Mindful Teacher, The Global Fourth Way, and if I'm not correct, the upcoming book is The New Imperatives of Educational, of educa change. Of educational change. Yeah. And we have been fortunate enough to have Dennis here at EI for this past week as a, this summer's um, visiting critical friend. Uh, we hope to have him back as soon as possible. And he's also been a, a keynote for EI at a number of events um, at our Unite for Quality Education conference in Montreal, I believe, which was two years ago. Mm -hmm. uh, he accompanied the EI delegation at the seventh international summit on the teaching profession uh, in Germany, in Berlin. And he also keynoted our uh, EI affiliates in OECD countries. It's a very snappy title, uh, meeting that we hold every two years, um, talking about the new imperatives in a way. And um, I think the past week gave us, you gave a talk on Wednesday for staff. Um, it was a bit of a pep talk. Um, was a bit of a, a frame thinking about where we are, sort of you know placing us in terms of both time and space, what the fads have been, where our profession finds itself, where the possibilities lie with these different imperatives. And um, I'm just very happy to have you with us, Dennis. So, so welcome. Thank you very much, David. How shall I get started here? Shall I describe a little bit? Um, yeah, maybe a little okay. bit about, about what you're working on and... Um, what you're doing, you're also taking a sabbatical, right? You're going to be yeah. in, in Venice. and Yes, I'll be teaching at Venice International University this fall, starting in September. I'll be on leave from uh, Boston College teaching in a program on globalization, which I'm actually quite excited about because um, one of our challenges in education is to work very hard within the profession, but also to look outside of it at different global trends that are, that are going on, um, which are of increasing importance every day. We are increasingly knit together in relationships of interdependence with the environment, the economy, and our politics. But I think one of the things we're experiencing this summer is um, folks in different jurisdictions pulling back from that increasing interdependence, yeah. um, whether that's with um, presidential politics in the U.S., uh, the Brexit vote in, uh, in the U.K., reactions against um, immigrants in Western Europe or, or wherever it might be. Um, it, it, it is a time for um, for many of our populations to want to, to turn back and strengthen uh, national identities. Of course, national identity is an important part of an identity, but in our increasingly interdependent world, we, we also are needful of a global or more cosmopolitan identity. So that's one of the big things that I'm thinking about this summer. And with that, maybe I'll just transition into a quick overview of what these five new imperatives do. of educational change are. Um, and these are a little bit out of sequence, but 
follows up from my previous remarks. So one is a transition from an insular imperative. Education in the past increasingly was very much focused on localities. And that could be a school district, it could be a state or a province, or it could be a country. Um, we have the, the, the strange situation today where um, national identity appears to be more uh, fervent than ever. But if teachers know that if you go into your schools, you, you might have half, you might have a majority, you might have all of your kids who are kids from other countries. And uh, a big challenge for educators is creating a welcoming environment for all of our students, wherever they come from. And it doesn't matter if I'm teaching in Boston, if the kids come from Bolivia, if they come from China, if they come from Nigeria. They're all students in my class, and they all deserve my, my, um, my respect and uh, my affection. So uh, one of the key transitions that we need to work out, I think, is, is understanding the, the benefits of local identities, but also not being constrained by them. And th this requires all of us to think in, in terms of a more global approach to educational change, and, and one that is not just um, pursuing a global approach because it is a just or because it's the right thing to do, but also because it's pleasurable, mm. because it's pleasurable to learn about other cultures, because mm. it's delightful to learn about other languages, because diversity enriches all of our lives. So th that's one imperative which I, I think is going to be key for us for, for, for the decades ahead, is um, transitioning from a local insular uh, imperative to a more uh, globalizing one. We also have to get better at marshalling evidence, so um, many of our jurisdictions right now, this is the second imperative, have been ideological, they've been captive to markets and standardization and testing, and we need to understand that those strategies have played themselves out. They haven't worked in those jurisdictions like the U.S., England, and Sweden, where they've been most ferociously pursued. Um, they certainly haven't worked in contexts like Chile, where there have been massive student and teacher protests to try and create a more just society. So we have a global imperative and we have an evidentiary imperative, but then we also need an in interpretive imperative. So in the book, The New Imperatives of Educational Change, I spent a lot of time looking at um, Germany's improving results on PISA and trying to figure out where do those come from. And in my conversations with German educators, I've been very struck by the strong philosophical and moral foundation that they want to give to education. They really want it to have some key values and principles that underlie it. In some of our contexts, like my own country, the United States, John Dewey's Democracy in Education was once a text that all students would read. Now it's the 100th anniversary of um, Democracy in Education this year, and, and, and this book is just um, not being studied at all. And this, this is a tragedy. This is a loss for all of us because we have a rich canon in education. So in between the evidence and our students are interpretations. Um, and we have to develop our strong philosophies and interpretations of educational change that will guide our processes. We can't just be data-driven, we actually have to be values-driven. Mm. That then is related to another imperative, the professional imperative. So in too many contexts, educators have been getting prescriptions for what they should do, and nowhere is this more pervasive now than in the global south where um, for-profit businesses like uh, Bridge International are, are spreading rapidly and simply giving uh, teachers uh, curriculum scripts which, which they, uh, they should follow. Uh, we have to move from such a prescriptive imperative to a, a, a richer, uh, more professional imperative in which teachers will be smart and they'll be connected and they'll have the capacity to make good judgments. So where are we right now? 
we have a global imperative, we have an evidentiary and an interpretive, and we have a professional imperative. And then the final one, the one actually in many ways which I care the most about, and I think we've neglected most perilously, has been the existential imperative. Our young people need meaning in their lives, and their meaning has to be related to others. So the tragedy that met all of us when we woke up this morning is that there was a terrorist attack in, in Nice in the south of France that at latest count had killed over 80 people. Now to a certain extent we can try and trace these issues to, um, to social class, we can trace them to immigrant status, we can trace them to religious beliefs, but we also should trace them to a crisis of meaning and meaning making mm. in our schools. Um, we've neglected this dimension of education at our, at our peril and at our great loss over uh, the last quarter century. And that this is something that all young people want. We all crave meaning. We all, we all want connectedness. We all want purpose. We all want beauty. And um, educators have the desire to share that with their students, but if policies get in the way, uh, they won't. So one of our big challenges for the future is going to be to get more mature um, and wiser about this unique aspect of the human identity, which is the quest to imbue life with meaning, beauty, and purpose. So I think that those, those are five imperatives. Of course, they're a bit subjective always, and folks who are listening to this broadcast should think, well, I would want to add in a sixth one, or I would want to replace a couple with, with my own imperatives. But for me, what it really comes down to are what are the things that we really should try to do with our lives as professionals, as members of the public, to ensure that the students who are in our schools every day hoping to learn, hoping to become good people, hoping to make a difference in the world, are getting the best possible educations. And uh, that's what makes them imperative. It's ultimately an ethical um, aspiration that we all should have as educators to make our world a better place. Dennis, um, being at EI, you're familiar with who we are, um, how we're organized, the sort of wide variety of organizations that that we represent. Um, one of the things that we've been having conversations about this week is the, the role of teachers' unions um, in helping those. In imperative, maybe it'd be fun for you to just sort of explain sort of the Latin base of imperative, which I think I take sort of resonated with me um, in terms of what we need in terms of pushing forward too. But um, what do we need to do as teachers' unions, both sort of globally and locally in order to make these imperatives felt and enacted upon? Yeah, so imperative comes from the Latin imperativus, um, which is to make ready or to prepare for. And if I could, um, um, I, I was fortunate to spend six years living in um, Germany and Switzerland and um, studied some Germanic philosophy. And Immanuel Kant uses this expression, die Vorbedingung der Möglichkeit, the preconditions of possibility. Before something can become possible, there have to be certain preconditions that we have to establish. So if you think that you're going to have a democratic, informed, and pluralist, multicultural society, there's certain preconditions that you have to meet. It won't simply be created as a byproduct of markets, for example. You have to think very intentionally about how you want to design your schools, how you want to establish the infrastructure of your society. And uh, one of the great challenges that we face right now, and you know, if, if you kind of wanted to, you could go back and study Alexei de Tocqueville's 
works on um, civil society. But uh, essentially, de Tocqueville was making an argument that people need intermediary associations in society. To be alone is a frightening experience in the world. You need family, you need friends, and you need unions, and you need uh, faith-based institutions or other kinds of groups you can get together. You need sports clubs. You need all different kinds of associations where your anonymity is overcome and it's replaced with relational trust and ties of um, reciprocity. That's what we need to be in the world. And we have to attend to that intentionally. If we don't attend to that intentionally, uh, de Tocqueville said, we would experience the atomization of societies. Individuals would be thrown back on their own resources. They would experience what Emile Durkheim later called anomie, or uh, Marx called alienation. And then we're creating perilous conditions in which individuals will throw themselves at the mercy of a leader, a charismatic leader who promises to protect and to defend. To build a wall. Promises to build a wall, right? Um, promises to build concentration camps. Okay. Promises to do any, promises to keep the other out right. of our societies. Uh, promises to divide us. Promises to separate us. And that is the great peril. Uh, of the present moment. And that's why the imperatives actually are imperatives. They're, they're not electives. They're not like, well, we, we could do this or we couldn't do that. These are things that we have to uh, attend to. And the reason that I come and work with Education International is or there's a couple of those. First, because I studied Tocqueville very carefully and because I worked with community organizations um, in the Southwest that were affiliated with the Industrial Areas Foundation, and also because I've worked with teachers' union through the Teachers' Union Reform Network in particular. And I believe very, very much that individuals need to be members of groups that help them to defend their interests, and that a lot of the problems that we have in society has to do with uh, isolation, which is one of the byproducts of market societies. Um, and so markets have to be um, corrected, and they have to be corrected through uh, civil society organizations, teachers unions are one of those. So on the one hand, there's a kind of a, there's a, a cognitive appreciation for the work of what unions do and what Education International does. But beyond that, I would say that there is a moral appreciation for the work that is done here. Uh, there's a moral appreciation for the work that Education International has done um, working around principles like the Dolores Pillars, learning learning to know, learning to make, learning to be, learning to be together. And um, those, the way that those values aren't free-floating, but that the way that they get institutionalized or concretized in the work that people do every day here mm. at Education International. So, um, so we want education to be more than just being smart, and we want it to be more than just being productive. We understand that it also should involve a certain way of being in the world which involves the capacity to listen to others, the capacity to appreciate nature, the capacity to be curious about other parts of the world and where different people come from, and the capacity to be passionate about helping all the inhabitants of this amazing, miraculous planet to appreciate our responsibility as stewards of the environment and to correct uh, climate change and to try and try and attain um, the sustainable development goals by 2030. We can't get there just by, we can't do those things, I think, on a purely local level. 
And even though I come from a country with over 310 million people, it's still only 5% of humanity. Hmm. So if, if I'm not attentive to what's going on with the other 95%, um, I, I will somehow have a narrow, narrow point of view. Even, even if I love all the aspects of my country, its craziness, its dynamism, and all that, I have to be curious about other places, and I have to let those other places um, change who I am inside of me. They have to, they have to change how I, the kind of language that I use, the, the, the way that I interact with people when I speak a different language, uh, my imagination about what's possible when looking at issues from different points of view. And I, 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 um, we have a hard time doing this in education because our educational systems in many ways are responsible to their local school districts, to their states or provinces, or to their countries. But who's looking out for the interests of the planet as a whole? Education International has to do that. And all of our different transnational bodies and agencies have to do that. And, and that's why, for me, to be here for a week was really inspiring and, and really exciting to be working with colleagues around issues of human rights, gender equity, access, um, people taking on uh, the privatization of education that's going on, the infusion of marketplace ideas, which have a role to play, but they shouldn't lead. They should be a small sliver of what goes on in educational change. Education's actually about good pedagogy, rich curriculum, assessment which drives learning forward, democratic governance for multicultural, multilingual futures. It's, it's not about markets. Education's actually not about governance, first and foremost. It's about learning. And, and so we have to recover our moral purpose in education. And I find it energizing to be here and to work with you and other colleagues here. So for me, I, I leave um, very uplifted, even though this is a very perilous time in history. And I think all of us have struggled uh, this week. Um, we are feeling very much the aftermath of Brexit. We are frightened by some of the national politics that are going on, including in my own country. What happened in Nice was, was horrific, but we can come together and we can meet these challenges. We can. We can do these things. Thanks, Dennis. I mean, one of the things that I also appreciate about you is you're so unapologetic about being a teacher and the practice, the discipline, the pedagogy. Um, there are a lot of I mean, for EI, I think one of the things, and no one would be surprised probably listening to this, you know, there's, there's quite a push uh, around deprofessionalization, which is a term that, you know, we always end up with these sort of negative terms, you know, to talk about what's happening. Um, but the push for sort of um, results-based financing, that something can only be, have a value if you can measure the test score, the increase on test scores, or teacher uh, education, can is only be is only valuable if it can show how that improves literacy or numeracy scores of the students, um, and we really struggle with you know trying to strike a balance between talking about the broader purposes of education and the need to keep philosophy, the need to keep those the existential imperative within the curriculum of teacher education, professional development, space for colleagues to talk, but at the same time to not let go of the actual work of teaching and the practice of teaching. And uh, there's a lot of sort of fads and trends out there. If you do this one thing, 
You know, we talked about some of these authors that sell millions of books because they say it's really only about this one thing mm -hmm. or this. Um, I was wondering if you could say just sort of you did a riff for us on Wednesday. You were when, when Dennis was great. Whenever he wants to kind of gets caught in a thought and wants to just keep moving with it, he's like, I'm just going to riff on this for a little bit, like, uh, you know, like Coltrane or something. And uh, <laughs> and I know I really I think I, I see you as sort of a, a jazz musician slash uh, educational researcher slash academic but I was wondering if you would riff a little bit on sort of how we keep because I feel like I mean constant panels debates about well you're not really teachers anymore you're you're coaches you're learning facilitators you're content deliverers you um, the whole everything changes because it, it's all about the student and the learning and the outcomes Teaching it, so there's even those who were trying to say that teaching itself doesn't really ha is, has no meaning anymore. So we need to move into a, like a post-teacher world. And you're very unapologetic in saying, you know, no, teaching is real. It's a practice. We need to, we need to be able to put the supports together. We need to be able to talk about. We need to be able to plan. We need to be able to execute, assess, know what we're doing, know where we're going. I was wondering if you would riff a little bit on, on some of sure. that for me. Sure, yeah, I'm, I'm happy to, David. Thank you for honoring me with a reference to John Coltrane. That, that made my day. Um, yeah, so some of this is my, um, the influence of Germanic thinking about education uh, on, on my own thoughts. So, um, so if you have someone like Immanuel Kant who says very simply, um, well, if you want to have ethical conduct, you have to treat other people's ends and not as means, and kind of says, well, you can't really do this this often in everyday life. Mm. But if you can, that's where, that's where ethics resides, right? Is, is when I don't instrum instrumentalize you and you don't instrumentalize me, but I view you as an end, and I view each person I encounter as an end. This is very hard to do in our world, but, but that's kind of the the, the ultimate ethical test. And then you say, well, to get to that space, I mean, in many ways it seems kind of unnatural. You would have to establish institutions in a society to, to kind of get to those goals. So, so then you'd have, you know, um, figures in the German tradition like uh, Hegel and Fichte um, who would be coming along and be saying, well, we have to think deliberately about how we're going to do this. Now, you know, yesterday I was talking with a um, colleague here at um, Education International has explained to me that these thinkers are read in teacher education programs in Germany. That's actually how you kind of get started is, well, human beings have this ability to say what their values are. They have this ability to say what they care about. A bee can't have that conversation, nor can a porpoise, right? right? But human beings have, have this capacity. It's what makes us uniquely human. That means that we have a certain responsibility to develop these sides of ourselves for, for, for larger goals like freedom and equality and dignity. Mm. Um, so, so there's a certain intentionality, and this is very much kind of tied up with how kind of Germany went from a country that, you know, Napoleon just marched through twice to all of a sudden you have a country that's, you know, producing all these Nobel Prize winners and, um, and creates the research university, and creates the kindergarten, and creates teacher education programs and creates all this infrastructure, which we borrowed directly, directly we borrowed these things in the United States from, from Germanic models. That means we have to think about social organizations and institutions seriously. And um, some of the romantics in education have very much damaged um, our work as professionals. And even though in many ways I love Paolo Freire and I love Ivan Illich and I love all the de-schoolers, um, They've had some very, very negative consequences because just old-fashioned teaching kids what you know 
almost becomes demonized as banking pedagogy. Right. Most of the education that goes on around the world today, and probably forever, has had to do with educators teaching kids what they know, because the world is a complex, coded place, and if we want to help our students to decode it, they can't do it by themselves. Right. They can't build on their prior knowledge always. If they build on their prior knowledge, they'll say that the world is flat. Mm -hmm. They will. <laughs> and they'll say that the sun moves around the earth because that's what it looks like, right? So you have to kind of disrupt prior knowledge sometimes and you have to have a really smart person to help students to do this. So we need a recovery of professional confidence within teaching within teacher education, and we need to appreciate the, the good parts of some of the critics of education, but we shouldn't go overboard, because you can vary, there, there is, there is a, a diabolical nexus, a kind of a Bermuda Triangle, where folks like Ivan Illich in favor of de-schooling society and the privateers and the profiteers meet, right, which is that traditional schooling's all bad, how awful. The children have to go in and they have to be socialized with one another and they have to learn how to share. Hmm. And they have to learn how to take turns, right? That is a mortal threat to what is being described as individualized or personalized learning, where I get to do whatever I want, whenever I want. So if I want to get up at two in the morning and do something online, that's freedom. But sitting down with a group of students and dealing with an intractable problem Okay? like climate change, like income inequality, like unequal access to education, well, that must somehow be really bad because maybe the student wants to go do something else at that point in time. No, I think we need a recovery of professional authority. The adults need to go back to being adults and not just say to children, you guys do whatever you want to do. And anybody who tells you you can't do whatever you want to do whenever you want to do it must be a really bad authoritarian person because what actually stands behind that is that atomization of society that Tocqueville described. And all of a sudden, who decides the curriculum? Well, it's Google. Google based on algorithms. We have some very irresponsible educators out there. Someone like Tony Wagner, mm. okay, you know, professor at Harvard, um, writes his most recent book with Ted Dintersmith on uh, privatization. He says, Google knows everything. So why do teachers have to know anything? Why do students have to know anything? Let's just let them do whatever they want, whenever they want, and that's how we're going to actually meet those sustainable development goals. Actually, that's the way you'll create a generation of egomaniacs, and that's the way that the adults will completely walk away from their responsibilities, and, you, and you'll end up with um, isolated people who think it's all about them and who won't care at all about any of the many dispossessed people who are going up around the world, and they'll be entirely incapable of democratic deliberation. We have to fight, we have to fight those tendencies. Um, and unfortunately, some of them are within education itself. Well, that was a great riff. I'm snapping. <laughs> I think that was, that was a little more Mingus than, than Coltrane. Um, now you've made uh, today and tomorrow for Today me. and tomorrow, good, good. <laughs> um, I don't know how we're doing on time. We're, we're, we're kind of we're kind of wrapping up so um, wow I, I, got, I got goosebumps on that um, so I'm gonna keep pushing on this though just to, 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 for a kind of a parting thought because I do feel that there is this if there's a focus just on outcomes 
-hmm. and there's an assumption that process doesn't matter, mm -hmm. that means doesn't matter, mm -hmm. that the means don't matter, right. um, that we create and that we trust in this, this blind trust in the market and this ability to um, pay people based on whatever they do to get kids wherever they are without any type of thought, deliberative, mindful, to get them there, um, that, we, that we will basically go back. I mean, there, there's this feeling that I have that, that a lot of the innovations that are being proposed, you know, the outsourcing of the responsibility of the state to, to private for-profit actors, um, everyone for themselves, that's not innovative. That's not, that's, we had that. I mean, in a way, we had the Wild West. We had mm -hmm. everybody for themselves trying to figure it out alone. And we made the choice as a society to come together yes. in order. Um, yeah. And I'm, I'm not quite sure, you know, how you, with economists that see education, the problem with education is educationalists, and that there are these easy solutions that we should just import and use and who cares whether it's a classroom who cares whether there's a teacher if they can read so many words in such a short period of time they hit these targets everything's fine i have yet to find a way to break through i've tried to come in to that narrative that paradigm and to speak to them using economic terms um, we talk about you know diminishing returns we talk about you know um all sorts of, you try to talk about market failure, you try to, but what, what you're really saying is, this is a moral argument, this is an ethical argument, this is a professional argument, this is, and I'm not even sure we're looking at the same world. Right, yeah, so um, it's also an evidentiary argument. An evidentiary argument. So, so, so w w when the new imperatives of educational change comes out, um, the first couple of chapters compare the PISA results from uh, three pro-market countries with Germany, which I think is, I try not to idealize Germany, but Germany has kept a critical distance from those kinds of um, pressures and reforms you've described. Mm. Test scores are in general not released to the public, they're for the professionals to consider. Um, it takes two years to prepare as an educator, and if you go through Teach First Germany, you're prepared to be a teacher's aide, mm. not to be a, a, a teacher. Um, Take note of that. There, there's, there's just a whole infrastructure, and there's a respect there that, to a certain extent, has a religious foundation. So um, the German term Bildung, which refers to the cultivation um, and, and the self-development of the personality, has a religious origin with um, Luther's translation of the Bible from Latin, Latin to German, where he said the human being is made in build Gottes, in the image of God. And so there's a certain responsibility for the educator, if, if you view the child from that point of view as being made in the image of God, to, to really do your best. You're not going to cut corners. You're not just going to focus on results. You'll have to deal with the child in all of her or his social, emotional, and even their spiritual complexity. So it's a very different way of looking at the world. I think that the simplest argument with the, the kind of pro-marketeers folks is put the evidence on the table. Put the evidence on the table and shows us it works. And don't just compare the schools that you, you cherry-picked in a few jurisdictions. Let's look at whole systems. And that means we have to look at the United States as a system. We have to look at England as a system. Look at Germany. Look at Sweden. These are school systems. They're not just kind of bags of random individuals. 
right? These countries have right. constitutions or policies, or curricular frameworks. They exist as systems. Okay. So what we're not going to do is we're not going to kind of go through and kind of handpick those those schools that get better results. Yes, you can pound away at kids. You can. You can strip away the curriculum. You can give them no music. You can give them no physical education. You can give them no uh, visual arts. You can give them no science. You can give them no social studies. You can just pound away on literacy. No on integrity. And then you end up with no integrity. Then you end up with situations like England is facing right now. Nobody wants to teach in the schools. Right. So then you have this thing called the Commonwealth, and you kind of issue this global appeal. Guess what? There's nobody in England that wants to teach in our schools. Why? Because it's a completely demoralized environment. Well, how is that leading to sustainable change or to a better world? Now, I, I think that the, the big problem that we have right now is, um, and you know, you don't have to have a Marxist critique of markets. You could have a Catholic critique. I mean, many of my concerns are very similar to what Pope Francis says, which, which is basically that um, markets have a role to play. They can be very dynamic. They can bring people across countries into relationships with each other, but they also produce inequities, and they also tend to make people materialistic, and that there's other aspects of being human beings. So ultimately, I think you're spot on. You're right. You, we, there is a moral argument, and part of our challenge now has to be to help human beings to understand the grandeur of what it is to be a human being, mm. and the grandeur of what education can release in human beings. Wouldn't we want to be known in the future as, uh, as participants in a civilization that made all kinds of scientific breakthroughs, all kinds of um, artistic um, creations that came out of our culture, new forms of music, literature, um, all the diverse arenas of human excellence, you know, physical excellence through um, sport or through hiking in nature? Wouldn't we want to be known that way? Yeah. Wouldn't we want to be known as generous? Wouldn't we want to be able to look back the way that you know, I can look back at the U.S. and say, yeah, there was a distinctive moment in American history, and it went from 1830 to 1865. And in that time period, educators created public schools. The public school movement was aligned with abolitionism, which got slavery abolished by 1865, and which eventually led to women having the right to vote. All these efforts were conjoined. They weren't isolated. They weren't against one another. So we have to understand that as educators, we, we have a historical legacy that we should be proud of, that we should stand behind, and, and that it does have moral dimensions. And uh, occasionally, it probably even would have moralizing dimensions. You know, that we have to kind of stand up and speak on behalf of young people that nobody else will speak, speak out on behalf of. That could be immigrant youth, it could be youth with uh, physical disabilities, it could be youth from impoverished backgrounds. Everybody that the rest of society doesn't want to accept, but that our teachers walk into schools every day and, uh, and step up to the plate and educate. Somebody has to do that, and I'm glad that Education International does this with all of its affiliates, and that's why I'm here. I'm here out of solidarity. And so it's a privilege to work with you and, and with your colleagues and um, put our shoulder to the wheel of history and, and see what we can do in the years ahead. Thanks, Dennis. It's an honor to have you with us. Thank you. Thank you. This was Ed Voices from Education International in Brussels on the web at ei-ie.org.